Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the What It Do Toronto Raptors podcast. My name is Drew Horton and let's get into it. The NBA postseason has begun and this is shaping up to be a very exciting playoff. Due to some key injuries in the Western Conference, every series is going to be exciting in the first round, which is not something you can say every year. Unfortunately, in the East, three of the series are going to be massacres, but the fourth is shaping up to be a very entertaining series based on Game 1. I'm going to start with the Eastern Conference so that I can strategically end on a huge Clippers rant. So here we go. The first series I'm going to talk about is the one-seed Philadelphia 76ers against the eight-seed Washington Wizards. Now, this probably won't be a close series, and while editing, I saw the final score of Game 2, and it looks like I was right, this series may very well be a sweep for Philly. Game 1 was fairly close, but the Sixers took a lead into the fourth quarter and never gave it up. Bradley Beal was really good, he had 33 points on 56% shooting, but Westbrook needs to play better if they're going to have any chance. The talent differential is so huge that the two stars on Washington have to play out of their minds in order for them to have a chance. Embiid had a respectable 30 points, and Ben Simmons had a double-double with rebounds and assists, but Tobias Harris was really the story of the game. He had 37 points overall and 28 in the first half. His hot shooting was the main reason Philly kept it even in the first half, because Washington, to their credit, came out strong. They actually ended the half with a one-point lead. But in the second half, Philly took it back, and the Wizards couldn't mount a comeback in the last 18 minutes or so, and fell by seven. It was a closer game than many people were expecting, but Philly ended up winning, and that's probably going to continue to be the story for the rest of the series. I'm expecting... Philly to either sweep or take it in five. Now on to another uneven series, the two-seed Brooklyn Nets against the seven-seed Boston Celtics. This one's fairly straightforward, Brooklyn's off to an easy 2-0 lead and looking at a probable sweep unless they drop one game in Boston. With the injury to Jalen Brown, the Celtics just really don't have a chance and it was an uphill battle before that injury anyway. Simply put, Brooklyn will go as far as their big three carries them. And that's gotten them out to a 2-0 lead over the Celtics. KD, Kyrie, and Harden are scoring most of the team's points, and that's really by design. In the first two games, KD's averaging 29-10-3, Kyrie's averaging 22-6-3, Harden is averaging 27-7. And And just for people that may not be familiar, when I list three numbers in a row with stats like that, First is points, second is rebounds, third is assists. The only surprise I've seen this far from the Nets is the exceptional play from Joe Harris. He's currently averaging 17 points per game on 56% from three. If he keeps that up or anywhere near what he's doing right now for the rest of the playoffs, these guys are going to be really dangerous. 
and that's why they're my pick to get out of the East this year. Now the next series, a rematch of last year's Eastern Conference Finals, the three-seed Milwaukee Bucks take on the six-seed Miami Heat, and Milwaukee's out to a 2-0 series lead. Game one was really close and the Heat almost took it in overtime, and game two was a massacre. Game one showed what happens when the Bucks play below their average and the Heat do pretty much everything right, and game two showed how the rest of the series is going to go. Giannis and Middleton are balling out right now. The Greek Freak is averaging 28, 15, and 5 in the first two games. Middleton averaging 22, 4, and 4 on 52% from the field. And beyond that, they have a balanced attack where Drew Holiday, Burn Forbes, and Brooke Lopez are giving them fantastic and efficient production from the bench. And from the rest of the starting lineup, I should say, with Holiday who is almost averaging a triple-double across the first two games at 15, 9, and 9. Dragic and Robinson have looked good for the Heat, but Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo are getting locked down, and the supporting cast hasn't looked as sharp as Milwaukee's. I think in part because they aren't getting as many open shots as the Bucks, And that's due to probably the better defensive play from the Bucks so far, as well as the increased playmaking that... Drew is adding on the offensive end. Now on to the one series I think will be close in the East this year, the New York Knicks and the Atlanta Hawks at 4 and 5 respectively. And this series may be more entertaining than I originally thought. Game 1 went down to the wire with both teams trading clutch buckets, culminating in Trey Young hitting a nice mid-range floater with less than a second left to give the Hawks the win. In the game, each team had four main contributors on the offensive end. New York had Burks, Rose, Randall, and Barrett. And Atlanta had Trey, Bogdanovich, Lou Will, and John Collins. And Trey's the best of all those guys. But the question is, can the Knicks game plan with their defense to stop him or at least slow him down? He doesn't show any signs of that. I truthfully don't know much about the workings of either team besides Trey Young doing a little bit of everything on offense because he's one of the best scorers and foul drawers in the game. So it'll be very interesting to see where this series goes. Will Trey Young prove too much for the Knicks, or will Julius Randle step up and play more like the all-star that he's been this year? Now game two just ended, and I'm looking at the recap and some of the highlights, and the Knicks take game two to even up the series with a final score of 101 to 92. And it looks like Derrick Rose really stepped up for them in the scoring role this game. But I think credit goes to the Knicks' defense. They absolutely clamped down on the Hawks in the second half. The Hawks started out strong to lead 57-44 to at the half, but then only scored 35 points in the second half, while New York rallied on a 32-point third quarter and a 25-point fourth quarter to seal the win. Trae Young still did have 30 points on relatively efficient shooting, but you gotta give the Knicks credit. 20 of those came in the first half and he only scored 10 in the second half. When the game got close and gritty, they were able to get the ball out of his hands and make other guys beat them, and they really didn't. Nobody else really had a good shooting night who had any real type of volume on the shot attempts. And that's one way to beat them. You make Trey Young score, but as long as he isn't playmaking, getting everybody else involved, and you can shut down 
his supporting cast, you can beat them, despite Trey going off for 30. Now, the series really is too close to call for me, so I'm just going to have to let this one ride out and see what happens in games 3 and 4. And now it's on to the West, which looks like it will be a bloodbath from round 1 this year. Now, the first series I'm going to touch on is the 1-8 series, the Jazz versus the Grizz. And the Grizzlies snuck out of Utah with a Game 1 victory in a nail-biter. The game counted down to the last second, and Bogdanovich clanked a 3 to tie at the buzzer. The Grizzlies had a late 4th quarter lead thanks to the work of Dylan Brooks, who put in 31, Jean Morin, who put in 26, and our former boy, JV, who had a 15-12 and double-double. And a quick side note, I was really impressed by Dylan Brooks and found out that he was Canadian on the broadcast, actually. He could be a very good addition to Team Canada. Anyway, back to the series. When Utah needed to fight back in the second half, Bojan Bogdanovich really stepped up. He scored 24th quarter points, but he couldn't convert on the very last shot, and they ended up losing by three. Bogdanovich ended the game with 29, Conley had 22, but Clarkson was poor on the offensive end, and Gobert was an offensive non-factor despite putting up 11 points while grabbing 15 boards. I couldn't really feel his presence. The Jazz would be heavy favorites to win, but with the injury to Donovan Mitchell, the series looks to be pretty tight. If he doesn't come back, the Jazz really won't go very far in the playoffs. I think this will be a very close series. I think the Jazz are very beatable without Donovan Mitchell, but I do think they are the stronger team, but not by so much that I can really guarantee them getting through this first round series. We could see an 8 seed beat a 1 seed this year. As I'm recording this, the Jazz are up 36-27 to at the end of the first quarter, so they do have a 9-point lead, and it's really too early to call anything, but I think they'd be happy if they could split, just get back into the series and leave to Memphis on even footing. I think it'd be a big win for them. Now on to the 2-7 series, the Phoenix Suns versus the Los Angeles Lakers. In this series, already good going to be very good going forward. A LeBron AD-led Lakers are always a tough team to beat, but Phoenix might just be up to the task. Despite them being the two seed, I feel like they probably are the underdogs in this one, and they did split the first two games at home. Booker really will have to play out of his mind, and Aiden will have to slow down AD like he did in game one for the Suns to pull this out. But AD showed in game two that he can really score at will. He had 34 points on 15 shots, plus he was 18 of 21 from the free throw line. And LeBron James was his usual playoff self, cruised to a 23.4 rebound, 9 assist game, and really didn't look like he was ever in any danger this game. Now Booker did have 31 in game two, Aiton had 22, and Cameron Payne had 19. Really good to see him contributing. They're going to need some bench contributions this series, especially since Chris Paul is playing through a shoulder injury. Now, if it wasn't clear before that the Suns are likely the underdogs, with Chris Paul's injury, I think it becomes pretty apparent that the Lakers are favorited to win the series. Not that the Suns can't do it, but I think the Lakers don't need to be afraid of the Suns. The biggest question I have for both teams is the role player contribution. 
Schroeder had 24 and Drummond had 15, both on very efficient shooting nights, but you can't expect those guys are going to put up those numbers every single night, especially Drummond. And there will come a time where LeBron and AD will need to score the vast majority of their team's points to win. And it's really going to be the same with the Suns. With Chris Paul not at 100%, they're going to need somebody else to step up besides Aiton and Booker. And Cameron Payne did that in Game 2 and it wasn't enough, but who's going to do it the next game? Yeah, only time will tell. The trickiest thing for the Suns will be having to slow down LeBron and AD, but I think the most important thing is LeBron can't be allowed to playmake and score. They need to try and hold him to just scoring because when he playmakes, his teammates get really good looks. And when the role players aren't as involved, they won't get as good shots, they won't be as involved in the offense, and they won't be as useful in crunch time. But I think it's an uphill battle for the Suns. At the end of the day, a LeBron-led team is a LeBron-led team, and I can't see a LeBron-led team losing in the first round. If Chris Paul comes back soon at 100%, I've got the Lakers in seven, but if he's not healthy for most of the series, I think it'll be Lakers in six. But I could be wrong, Devin Booker is known to go supernova every now and again, so we'll have to see. But my money is on the Lakers. Now moving on to another series that will be closer due to a key injury. It's the three seed Denver Nuggets versus the six seed Portland Trailblazers. This series is close because Jamal Murray is injured and the Trailblazers now have a shot to get out of the first round against Jokic, where I think they really didn't before. The series is tied up at 1-1. Each of the teams has had a blowout victory so far, splitting the Denver Nuggets homestand, and this looks to be a really offensive series. Whatever team scores more is going to win. Now I know that sounds dumb, what I mean is going to be an offensive series like I said, and the winning team will likely need to score at least 120 points to win. Now the reason I say that is because Nikola Jokic and Damian Lillard are monsters and cannot be stopped. They are unreal in their own right, but on top of that they present huge mismatches on both sides. Portland doesn't have the size and the strength to stop Jokic. He'll either get buckets one-on-one -on -one like he's done, or he'll pick them apart if they double-team him with his court vision, which he's also done. I think the Trailblazers just have to accept that Jokic is going to average 30 points and 10 assists in the series and try to lock down some of the other guys. Now on the other hand, Damian Lillard presents a huge threat for the Denver Nuggets. There's nobody with the speed to guard Lillard and they can attack Nikola Jokic in the pick and roll relentlessly and get either open threes for Lillard or nice easy roll buckets for the screener. Both these guys will continue to ball out and average 30 for the rest of the series. The question is where will the other points come from? For Denver, you've got Michael Porter Jr., Aaron Gordon, and one of Monte Morris, Facundo Campazzo, Paul Millsap, or Austin Rivers that will need to step up every game. And for Portland, you've got CJ McCollum, Norman Powell, Mello, and Yusuf Nurkic that will need to score, and Denver's supporting cast does have better defense, 
but Portland's guys can just get buckets. CJ's a star in his own right. Melo can get it going and have a nice, really solid performance a couple times a series. Nurkic can score, but he'll have a tough time against the size of Jokic. And that leaves Norman Powell. If he turns into playoff Powell like he did for the Raptors, the series is over. But if he doesn't, this will be a gritty series where I'm really not sure who comes out on top. And I'd be tempted to give the Nuggets the edge. Game 3 is going to be really key this series. People will need to step up that maybe aren't as consistent as the stars are. And to have a game in hand for the rest of the series to give your team one extra chance might be the difference. Now on to my favorite part of the episode. I am going to rip into the Clippers. They're down 2-0 to the Mavs, and the way they've lost, it's really telling about how fragile their team really is. Game 1 was close most of the way through, and it came down to a moment in the late fourth quarter where the Clippers got called for a charge on an honestly iffy at best call, and they just let it ruin their momentum. They trailed most of the game, but the Clippers managed to get themselves a 3-point lead with 5-6 to six minutes to go, and within 3 minutes the Mavs had a 7-point lead and the game was iced. The Clippers are in real trouble, especially when you consider that Kristaps Porzingis was the 5th leading scorer on the Mavs that game with 14 points. Jalen Brunson had 15, Finney Smith had 18, Tim Hardaway Jr. put up 21, and of course Doncic led the way with 31 points. Now, Kawhi and Paul George did put up a decent point total, but they had inefficient shooting nights, and really telling was that no other player had more than 11 for them, and they lost by 10. Now, Game 2 looks like the prime Clippers are coming out and fighting back after getting punched in the mouth in Game 1. Kawhi had 41 points on 67% shooting, and Paul George had 28 on 55%, along with 12 rebounds and 6 assists, but they still lost. Doncic had 39, Hardaway Jr. had 28, KP had 20, and the Mavs won after a decisive third quarter, and the Clippers never led in the last 20 minutes of the game. Now these wins aren't stolen. The Mavs are outworking, outplaying, and outcoaching the Clippers. The Clippers' main strategy on offense is a Kawhi or PG ISO, and they sprinkle in a pick and roll once every 10 or 12 possessions. The other players really stand around and only get passed to when Kawhi or Paul George can't beat their man or they get doubled. Their offense is stagnant. Luckily they have Kawhi and PG, two of the best ISO players in the game, but it won't work against a solid team like the Mavs. Now there is still some hope for the Clippers. The Mavs are shooting a blistering 50% from three as a team for the first two games, and Tim Hardaway Jr. himself is shooting 65% from three. Those numbers won't hold up and they'll fall down back to earth, and the Clippers over the season were the number one three-point shooting team in the league based on percentage, and they're only shooting 32% from three as a team in the first two games, which is bound to regress toward the mean and look closer to 40% for the rest of the series, ideally anyway. Now I did give the Clippers a little bit of hope there, but I'm really going to cut the legs out from under you. The construction and the coaching of this team is baffling, except for Kawhi and PG. They don't have a scary playmaker, Pat Bev can only shoot corner threes on the offensive end, 
and Rondo can't shoot at all really, so his playmaking is limited. They acquired three-point shooters to surround Kawhi and Paul George, but are only shooting 32% so far in the series, which may very well go up. But they're ice cold at the moment, and those streaks can last more than four or five games, and that's all the Mavs need if that keeps up. Rondo has been their best three-point shooter at three of four in the series, and that's really only because when he gets a three-point look, he can set up, tie his shoes, test for the wind, and brush his teeth before the defense is in contest range. That's how far they're sagging off him. The Clippers acquired Luke Kennard from Detroit solely because of his three-point shooting, and they even extended and offered him a four-year $64 million deal, but haven't played him a single minute in the first two games of the series. What is that? He is a lights-out three-point shooter, not great on the defensive end, but they're not stopping the Mavs anyway. You might as well have somebody making the three-point shots. And Serge Ibaka only has 18 minutes in two games and he looks like their third best player. In those 18 minutes, he is plus 17 with 10 points on 50% shooting, four rebounds, two assists, one steal, and three blocks. Zubats has approximately the same counting stats but slightly worse in all areas, in more than double the minutes, and is a minus 29 in the series so far. They acquired Ibaka, presumably to add playoff experience, veteran grit, and an interior defensive presence. And they just haven't played him. I haven't seen this really mentioned anywhere. He can still contribute, especially when Zubox is just getting cooked by Luka Doncic on every possession. They might as well try something new, right? In two games so far, Tai Lu has not adjusted at all and it looks like he's running his head into a brick wall it almost worked in game two because Kawhi was red hot and that's what playoff Kawhi does but you need to have some help around him and if that help is not going to come from the natural creativity of playmakers around them on the floor then the coach has to do something in order to put his stars in the best position to win that includes offensive and defensive schemes, in addition to managing rotations. Play Surge, Tai Lu, you coward! And, you know, maybe do some coaching. Late in game one, Tai Lu drew up a play, which just ended up being a Kawhi ISO and a mid-range contested jumper that clanked out. Most coaches draw up a play where an ISO is the last resort because the first, second, and probably third options are some kind of open shot that the action drawn up generates, but Tai Lu, with his vast experience of coaching LeBron and basically just letting him handle everything, has now led to, I think, his lack of coaching creativity being exposed. I hope he proves me wrong and the Clippers can fight back, but at the moment, it's depressing to watch if you're a Clippers fan. The way things look, I wouldn't be surprised if the Clippers got swept. The team has no cohesion, no game plan, no coaching, and no heart. Kawhi doesn't need one seeing as he's a basketball android, but the rest of the team does. It truly goes to show how a leadership presence really does tie everything together. A player like Kyle Lowry, for example, who the Clippers, by the way, did not trade for at the deadline, and it's now costing them. To end on a Raptors note, Kawhi was our superstar during the championship run, and we wouldn't have done it without him. But never for a second doubt 
the Raptors were Kyle Lowry's team. He was the glue that kept it all together, and that's something the Clippers are sorely lacking in. A team game plan and someone to bring everybody together. And it's going to cost them this series, and maybe even this current iteration of the team altogether. And that's it. Thanks for listening to episode 11 of the What It Do Toronto Raptors podcast. This is Drew Horton signing off. Peace.